Well, good morning and please be seated. Good to see you all. Please turn to 1 Peter in your Bibles or bulletins, 1 Peter 3, starting with verse 8. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers here. And it's good to see some, some new mothers here, probably visiting family. I look forward to meeting you after the service. We're in an um, Eastertide series. This is our last sermon from a series in Eastertide called Secure. Secure. And it's about the gospel promises that we have in anxious times. We've looked at how Jesus offers true security to our life, to our inheritance, to our future, things that we in ourselves can't secure. And today we're talking about a secure reputation. Uh, some people say that it takes a lifetime to build a good reputation, but only a moment to lose it. One night there was a dinner party back in 2007 filled with very important guests, leaders in science, academia, media, and others as well. And this dinner party was featuring a debate um, about science and faith. And it featured the late Christopher Hitchens, who's uh, uh, an atheist, and um, he was debating a Christian. And Hitchens won the debate, and uh, he was asked by someone at the, um, the dinner party, a man named Francis Collins, an esteemed scientist, actually, who led the Human Genome Project for years before being tapped um, to lead the National Institute of Health. Um, Francis Collins asked uh, Dr. Hitchens a question about whether an atheist could claim any real status for good and evil or whether, in his view, that was a holdover from just natural selection. Now, Christopher Hitchens didn't like that question at all. And with everyone listening, he said, he basically responded, that's such an idiotic, childish question. I'm not even going to answer it. Now, if you're in Dr. Collins' shoes and your colleagues and friends are all around you watching um, a, a very popular atheist star and Oxford um, you know, faculty member basically call you an idiot, what would you be tempted to do? Um, it's just a devastating moment. But maybe you've been in a situation like this yourself. Let's say that you have a coworker who, who questions you about your faith and they make suggestions that you're, you're closed-minded and uh, that you're a fundamentalist. Or maybe um, your business that you worked really hard on gets spammed by one-star reviews from an unhappy customers or former employees, and you lose market share as a result. Or maybe you have classmates that spread rumors about you in a group chat or on social media. Or it could just be a simple misunderstanding between two people. Uh, it could be that your, uh, your adult child misunderstands your attempts to love them and they stop answering your calls. If you've ever been misunderstood, if your reputation has ever been attacked, if you've ever been reviled or slandered, we know how tempting it is to try to correct the record, to try to defend ourselves, to fight back, or even just hide away in shame. What's your temptation when your reputation is maligned? Now, Peter was a pastor in the early church, and he was writing to a group of Christians who had been misunderstood by their neighbors. These are Christians in Asia Minor. And they weren't yet under the ex most extreme forms of persecution in the Roman Empire. But they were starting to be questioned, maligned, talked about. Maybe these people are the problem. 
with the Roman Empire. Maybe we can blame them. Maybe we should blame them because they're not honoring the gods. They're not showing up to the temples. They're not going to the dinner parties. They're not showing homage to the, you know, powers and principalities that can make things good for us around here. And so they were talking bad about the earliest Christians. In verse nine of our text, Peter actually references reviling. Reviling is, is verbal abuse and unfair criticism. And then in verse 12, he talks about when you are slandered, not if you're slandered, but when you are slandered, when there's nasty rumors about you. And now in his letter to them, and especially in this section, Peter reframes this moment of slander and reviling as actually an opportunity, a gospel opportunity. And he encourages them that an, at an attack on our reputation is actually a platform to display Christ's honor. That it's totally not what you think. This is not a moment to defend yourself. This isn't actually a crisis for you. God has honored you with a unique platform. He has platformed you and raised you up and given you an amazing moment for you to display the honor of Christ. Isn't that an amazing privilege? Slander is actually our chance to shine the light of Christ. Think about it. When Dr. Collins was called an idiot with a childish question, guess whose actions and words were on full display? Right? Dr. Collins. Everyone's watching to see how he responds, to see what he doesn't say, to see what he does say, to watch his body language, to watch what he does not just in that moment, but after that moment's over. This is not the opportunity that many of us would ask for, but it is a huge privilege. And so if you follow the path that Peter lays out here, um, you're going to find that, we're all going to find that in the end, God actually will take care of our reputations in his way and in his time. Um, and you will find that some of the anxiety around trying to control our reputations will lift and, and life will become a lot easier um, and life will be more joyful. So this has two parts. When, we're, when our character is maligned, um, we have an opportunity to shine with the light of Christ, first of all, by displaying the blessing of God. And that's in the first part of our text, verses eight through 12. We get to display the blessing of our Father God, who loves actually to respond to criticism with blessing. The second thing is that we get a chance to display the confidence of Christ, which is in the second part of our text, verses nine and onward, displaying the confidence of Christ when our reputation is attacked. So here are Peter's instructions for, for Christians who are under attack. He says, verse eight, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly and sisterly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. There's some families here present. It's good to see some of your families here. And you know, all families have some distinct traits, don't they? You can just tell who the families are. Some families have musical talent. Others, athletic ability. Some have analytical minds. Some have a great, you know, they're just great with food. They have great culinary taste and vision. Um, gifts and features get passed down generation to generation. And when parents see their, their children displaying their best qualities, they're like, yes, that's my daughter. That's my son. They're making me proud. Now, when we're in the family of God, we, we get passed down the unique family trait of blessing in response to cursing. Did you know that this is a unique family trait from Father God? It's what 
uh, our Father does, Father God does, that's what our Savior Christ does. That's what the Holy Spirit has prompted generation after generation of Christians to do. Karen Jobes tells the story of a young soldier serving in the armed forces. He was a Christian, and every night he would end his day by praying and reading the scriptures. His fellow soldiers would make fun of him for this. They would revile him for it every time. And at one such occasion, as he was praying, he noticed that a muddy, stinky combat boot was right next to his head. Barely missed him. The next morning, the soldier who threw that boot found the pair of boots that he threw cleaned, shined, ready for inspection. Do you know what happened in that, uh, in that unit? Many of the soldiers became Christians because they watched what the Christian soldier did. Didn't curse and respond to cursing, didn't throw his boot back. He actually gave a blessing in response to cursing. And I imagine the father God looking down on his beloved son who is one with Christ, who responded as Christ would and said, I'm so proud of you for cleaning the boot rather than throwing your own. It's a family trait. Um, the words of Jesus from our gospel text say this. Um, uh, well, actually, a different, a different teaching from Jesus in Matthew 5. He says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters of your father in heaven. For he, the father, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now, here's the flip side of that. God, you know, God loves it when we bless in response to cursing, because that's what he would do. But he hates it when people lie and slander, because both of those actually are hallmarks of the enemy. The enemy brings lies and slander to confuse, tear down, and destroy the good things that God has made. So when our name is under assault, it's really tempting to retaliate with our own lies and accusations and actually get dragged into the mud of the enemy and the accuser and get into it with him using the proxy of the person that he's speaking through. Everything in us wants to defend ourselves by spinning the truth, by hitting back. But Peter actually quotes the Psalm we read today, verse 10. He says, he's quoting um, the, the Psalm, Psalm 34, whoever desires to love life and see good days let him or her keep their tongue from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. Now, why would we do that? Why would we take that peace-loving path? The psalmist, which Peter quotes, gives us the reason in um, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. His eyes are on the righteous and his face is turned away and against those who do evil. Thomas Paine once said this, reputation is what men and women think of us. Character is what God and the angels know of us. So it's so much better, my friends, to have a high standing before God who sees the situation perfectly than a high standing before people who only see in part and quickly forget it's so much better for us to invite the presence of the Lord through a pure heart than to drive him away by repaying evil for evil. It's so much better to be vindicated on the final day before God and the angels than to be vindicated in the short term in the court of public opinion. God's eyes and ears are taking in and watching our response 
to slander and lies. And he sees us, my friends. He sees you responding with blessing in response to cursing. He's hearing your prayer, consoling your heart. He's protecting your life. Here's what another psalmist promises. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear the Lord and rescues them. So my friends, the greatest blessing that we could ever ask in this life during our trials is the presence of the Lord, that he would actually draw near to us and that he would help us and that he would strengthen us and that he would be proud of us. He would protect us in ways we can't protect ourselves. Uh, One godly leader said this, if I defend myself, that will be my defense. If I let God defend me, that will be my defense. And God is so much better as an advocate than we are. This is a crucial resource, my friends, for anyone who is reviled, misunderstood, or lied about, is that we can actually picture and practice the presence of the Lord with us in the very moment where we are being attacked, that he cares about you. He's not left you alone. And as we take in his blessing, we actually will have resources to display it for those who are watching for our response. A friend of mine who lives in a different part of the country told me about how this worked in his own life. About 10 years ago, uh, my friend lost his job in an unfair way. People from his close community were, were involved in the firing, which, which hurt him deeply, and it did involve reputational attack. After moving jobs in cities, uh, he began to pray the Lord's Prayer every single day. And when he would get to the part about, for, um, as we forgive those who sin against us, he would remember these people. And he would pray for these people. He would ask for the help to forgive them. He never felt like it. Not once did he feel like it, but he prayed it every day for a year. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us, including um, these, these people. But after a year, he actually felt something change, something shift, and he felt the power to forgive. He actually, he actually noted at a distinct moment in his life, now I've actually freely forgiven them in my heart. And, and eventually, the Lord prompted him to actually write letters of apology, owning his part in the conflict to the people um, who had been part of, of him losing his job, asking their forgiveness for ways that he had hurt them. And God, he even got a letter in response, and there was some reconciliation there. And as I think about his example, I can't help hearing the words of the Father, boy, I'm so proud of you for doing that, saying that to my friend, for displaying the blessing of God when uh, his reputation had been unfairly attacked and where that had led to a loss of job. So we display the blessing of God. That's one unique thing that we have a chance to do Um, When our name is dragged through the mud, the other thing that we have a chance to do this opportunity is to display the confidence of Christ, to display the confidence of Christ. Someone once said, confidence is quiet, insecurity is loud. When Jesus Christ was questioned and maligned, he responded with confidence. He didn't go on the attack. He responded with thoughtful questions, gentle love, or even with silence, depending on what the situation was calling for. And he actually trusted that the Father would vindicate him. Now, Peter is calling us to display the same level of confidence um, when we are maligned. And this, act, uh, this often, if you think about how a confident person responds when they're under pressure, they respond with a peaceful heart and just a reasonable explanation. They're not, they don't have to get defensive. 
Peter asks a rhetorical question to open this subject. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If you actually intend for the good, who wants to get in your way? Well, the answer is not as many people as you'd think. Um, Proverbs 28.1 says this, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. So the confidence of Christ is actually a, a natural outcome of loving what he loves and being zealous for what he's zealous for. He has nothing to hide. He has nothing to spin. He has nothing to defend. And actually, Jesus didn't live in fear of the attacks that would come. He actually knew that they were coming. And so um, he actually continued to pursue his calling, knowing that there would be some attacks. Sometimes people do want to harm us, though, even when we do want to do good. And here's how Peter calls us to display the confidence of Christ in that situation. He calls us first to an inner preparation of heart and mind in verses 14 and 15. As we see that Peter says, even if you do suffer for righteousness sakes, you'll be blessed. Don't be afraid of them or be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So Peter is calling us to not be afraid of the people who are questioning us or abusing us. Later in the letter, he'll say this, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know what? In a moment of crisis, we may have to do this every 10 minutes or every hour, certainly every day, because there will be anxiety in our heart. We're not going to be as confident as Christ. We're not going to feel confident, but actually we can draw from the confidence as we give to the Lord our greatest anxieties. And we just go, you have to be in charge of the situation. You've got to be my defense. Would you help me just engage the situation as lovingly and reasonably as you would have me do? Second, in verse 15, Peter encourages us to honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts, to worship him, to devote our suffering to him, to make him the object of our greatest affections. Lord, you are holy. And in my heart, you're king, you're Lord. You're in charge of everything. You're over this entire situation. This will actually fill you with confidence to know that Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord over the trial that you're going through and that actually it's passing through his loving hands as something that he is allowing to strengthen you. And actually, remember, it's that platform. He's giving you a platform to display his confidence. It's a huge honor. So honor him as Lord in your hearts when you are under attack. And then thirdly, Peter encourages us to prepare a gentle, respectful, honest answer to those who question us. And people will listen with extra attention because, well, what, how is this person going to respond? They've just been insulted. Now, the impact of this over time is verse 16. Over time, we've got verse 16 uh, happening here. We have a good conscience. So that when we're slandered, those who revile our good behavior in Christ maybe put to shame. So Peter's beginning a hint at the day that, you know, that we all long for when there is a, a loss of reputation, which is a moment of vindication, a vindication for those with a clean conscience. Now, this is not um, a moment where people who have been attacking us are made to feel shame. This is in the honor shame uh, society. This is actually a moment where, the, where there's a right standing. There's a change in standing. Um, that God actually exalts the humble and he humbles the proud. 
And God chooses to do this in his own way and in his own time. It usually doesn't happen as quickly as we want it to. Um, sometimes it happens suddenly when someone's caught in a lie, when they fall into the trap they've set for others. But, you know, a lot of times, you know what happens? It just happens slowly over time um, in uh, moment by moment as we choose to bless in response to cursing. After being called an idiot, Dr. Francis Collins didn't react in kind. Actually, you know what he did? He kept the conversation going. He kept it respectful. He kept it friendly. And um, you know what happened is that the two men became friends and they began to have more dinners together, more conversations together over a series of years. Now, eventually, Christopher Hitchens developed stage four cancer. And, and Dr. Collins actually pioneered genetic research in an effort to find a cure for his now dear friend. When Hitchens eventually passed away, who played the piano at his funeral but Dr. Francis Collins? His response to Hitchens displayed so clearly the confidence of Christ. It didn't make Collins seem smaller. It actually made Christ look bigger. It displayed, wow, this is who Jesus Christ is. And that was displayed to leaders in media, science, um, people who have a lot of questions about the Christian faith, a lot of skepticism about the Christian faith, but who better than a maligned Dr. Collins to display the beauty of the gospel? Here's a promise from Psalm 37. God will make your righteousness reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Don't fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. These are the promises that can fill our hearts, uh, that actually allow us to grow in the confidence of Christ and knowledge that in the end, he will vindicate his son. And in a right way, he will vindicate us as well. It's a paradox that God chooses to use maligned people to display his glory. And this is seen most clearly in the cross of Christ which Peter closes this section with in verse 17, he says, it's better to suffer for doing good than uh, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered once for our sins, that he might bring us close to God. Key part of Christ's suffering is the loss of reputation. This is a very significant way that Christ was put to death, that before he was physically killed, he was reputationally killed. He was unjustly uh, accused by many people, false witnesses all over the place. He was um, unjustly condemned. So the law and the religion of the day condemned him, but quite, quite unjustly and untruly. He was then stripped of his garments, and flogged, and then he was crowned with a crown of thorns and mock garments of like, we're going to call you a king, but in a, rep, a reputationally takedown sort of way. They spat on him. They pulled on his beard. They slapped him, punched him, whipped him. He was mocked. He was made a literal scapegoat and an object of rage. So in every way that a reputation can be destroyed in this life, Jesus Christ's reputation was destroyed key part of his suffering. Yet when, when this was happening, when it was the most intense, is that was when he was the most silent. And that was a powerful silence. Some of you, if you've read C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia, you, you know that 
This is pictured in uh, the slaughter of Aslan. That actually one of the things that the white witch did, who, the white witch symbolizes the enemy, and she actually orders that Aslan's mane be shaved off before he's killed. Now, this wasn't physically necessary to kill Aslan, but it was reputationally necessary because what happened was when his mane was shaved off, he looked like a cat. And so they started making fun of him like he was just a little kitten. And then they bound him up, they muzzled him up and, and mocked him, and, and then they killed him. But what happened was that when, when Aslan was raised to life and he was given his mane back, he actually was, through his humility, able to access the power of the deeper magic, which silenced the accusing power of the White Witch over all of Narnia. And he goes through all of Narnia roaring and setting people free. And no longer is the White Witch able to accuse all of um, his beloved creatures in Narnia. And when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he wasn't just physically raised from the dead, although he certainly was. He also was raised from the dead as our great high priest who comes to advocate for us and to set us free from the power of the accuser and actually to be our best defense when we are uh, attacked, maligned, lied about. Jesus Christ actually used the cross as his platform to display the glory of God. Blessing in response to cursing. And the best way for us to pray when we are in the place of Jesus, unfairly treated, we say, God, use this trial in my life to draw people to yourself, to bring the unrighteous uh, to God as you have done so with me. Lord, set all of us free from slander, lies, accusation, make us uh, alive in the Holy Spirit. And my friends, when we do this, it's so powerful when we stand in the truth that any reputational attack is a key platform. It's a moment to display the honor of Christ, his confidence, his blessing in response to cursing, my friends. We live out this truth that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And let's all do this for the glory of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.